Hi, I'm Megan, a speech-language pathologist in Missoula, Montana, and this is the Therapy Insights Podcast, where we dive into what it means to be a rehabilitation clinician and how to connect with people who are going through some of the most extraordinary challenges of their lives. In medicine and in society, we fail to recognize that just fixing problems and making them go away is not the only way we can provide help. Empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. As Ram Dass said, when all is said and done, we're really just all walking each other home. How do we connect with people who have a brain injury? How do we not let our therapy devolve into power struggles? How do we help improve insight without crushing people's hope? To explore these questions today, we're talking with Andrew Hill. Andy is a licensed clinical social worker in Missoula, Montana. Before his career in therapy started, he was offered a temp job working exclusively with adults with brain injuries, helping them with everyday tasks and skills. This temp job led him to a degree in social work from the University of Montana. While there, he completed a practicum at Community Bridges through Community Medical Center, a program that specialized in traumatic brain injury recovery. He has worked in a variety of settings and now works in private practice. His clinic, Missoula Therapy, provides a variety of services and is currently the only practice in Montana specializing in traumatic brain injury recovery. His current client base is about 75% people with brain injuries, and he is working towards working with brain injuries exclusively. He is the only psychotherapist certified in brain injury treatment in the state of Montana. Through his work with people with brain injury, he has earned an honorary Blackfeet name, Awasapi Napiquan, which he explains in our interview. And I'm so excited to share this interview with all of you. One of the most challenging things for every client I've ever worked with with a brain injury, they all say that they feel like people don't understand uh, because they look normal, they look like everybody else, and people can't grasp why their behaviors are the way they are. Um, You know, one thing. I talk about frequently with clients as if they had a you know a major scar or uh, you know part of their head was missing people would identify mm-hmm. uh, just like if somebody's got a, a broken arm in a cast um, but you know if you're walking around and your arm looks normal and it's not in a cast nobody's gonna know and so it's it's a real struggle for for just about everybody it's interesting when you use the phrase they feel like people don't understand. I mean to me that that makes me pause and think, wow, like they they probably have way more insight <laughs> than I give them credit for. Yeah. And they're just struggling on a daily basis to try to communicate what, what they're going through. Yeah, well and and you know this as a speech pathologist that they they can't they can't communicate it's you know they can have a picture an object in their head and they can they could draw it they can see it in their head but they can't come up with a word and so imagine what it's like for them when they're trying to describe how they feel 
or they think. I mean, you know, it's that's a lot harder to describe than describing a, a red barn, for instance. Um, and I frequently see looks of relief on clients' faces when they're trying to explain something to me and, and they can't. And I've heard it enough that I know what they're trying to say and I can put the words in their mouth and they just, their shoulders drop and there's just a, a big sense of relief sure. that I was able to communicate for them in that instance. Yeah. So I have seen some therapy sessions devolve <laughs> very quickly, including mine. Yeah. Like I will have an idea of what I want to work on <laughs> during a therapy session. <clears throat> and I see the deficit, I see the impairment, I see an exercise that we can do to address that. And then that person either does not see the benefit of it or it's frustrating, they don't want to do it, see the point and there's this huge disconnect <laughs> yeah and then it becomes sort of this battle so how can we a prevent getting to that point and b if we do find ourselves in that point how can we regroup and move in a different direction again that's a loaded question <laughs> um i think every question in this on this topic is a loaded question um, so when you go to grad school for social work they teach you lots and lots of theories and different things like that and the one thing that I always latched on to all through grad school was the, the person-centered approach where you know they're your equal and to me that's a really important concept I see too many therapists of all disciplines have kind of a phony approach. It's not their real personality when they're dealing with clients. And it's a persona. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I think it's important for everybody to remember that a client, no matter who they are, is a person. And so that's the, the first thing that I do, is I treat all my clients like my equals. Um, and when you have the first part of your question was when you have a situation devolve and a person's struggling how do you what do you do um typically when i have a session that that and that happens it's usually because the person's completely overwhelmed and so when clients come in here for their first session i always tell them that you know things that we do are slow don't expect an overnight miracle and when there's a brain injury involved you can add a multiplier of 10 to that slowness and I frequently remind them of that uh, as they come in uh, especially when they start to get frustrated and I, I normalize it explain to them that that the struggle they're having is normal it's something that everybody has and we take breaks as needed um, it's not uncommon for somebody to get up out of a session and go get a drink of water and you know take a five or ten minute break and then come back in um, my my way of thinking about that is that it's about the end result and not the speed uh, so what I mean by that is if they need to take breaks and they need that those timeouts we do it 
because it's better to have them take the timeouts and the breaks than to push themselves because if they push themselves it's not going to sink in and they're not going to get any benefit from that mm -hmm. um, those I think are the two big things that, that I do uh, for that uh, and I forgot the second half of the question <laughs> how let's see how can you avoid getting into that situation in the first place same thing <laughs> I think I think that answers both halves of the question um, and there's going to be times when you can't avoid it uh, sometimes I have clients uh, that will get it really angry uh, for really no apparent reason um, it, sometimes it's they're frustrated with themselves uh, sometimes they're, they're frustrated with me or their situation um, and in, in those times I um, I just try to encourage them to relax and we stop working on whatever we were working on. Um, you know, I've had sessions where we work on things for 10 minutes and spend the rest of the session calming down. And sometimes that's just what it takes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about the pressures that rehab therapists are under, especially I mean, I work in skilled nursing, so I know that area the best, but there's a very strict standard for productivity, mm -hmm. and insurance is very limited as far as, especially if they're younger, mm. you don't always get enough days to make a lot of progress. And I think as you're saying this, like one thing that I think is valuable too is maybe letting go of that pressure on ourselves like we're not gonna <laughs> solve this problem in the 20-day insurance period or whatever yeah um, you know when I when I supervise um, students or people working on licensure I always tell them that that the biggest mistake that they can make is to assume that they can fix their client because they can't it's it's a place to check in, get some guidance and some pointers, and you know, get set out on the right direction. And then it's really up to the client and maybe their family to do the hard work. Um, so that's something that I always keep in mind. Uh, and the insurance thing is probably the biggest obstacle to that moving at the client's pace thing, uh, particularly uh, work comp clients. Uh, you know, I'll get a referral that says they get 10 sessions of CBT therapy. Well, I don't know who deemed that CBT might be the right thing for that person, but, you know, personally I'm trained in a lot of different types of therapy and I like to tailor my approach to the person and their issue. And, you know, they'll dictate that it has to be CBT and sometimes that's just wrong for that particular client. It's not the right thing. Um, and they'll say you have 10 sessions to fix this person. And anybody who's ever worked with somebody with a brain injury knows that 10 sessions is barely even a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Some of my clients I work with for years. Uh, and so I try not to let those limitations even factor in. Um, I typically, when I do a treatment plan, I don't, I, if it's a 10 session limit, I don't factor that in. I I set it up as though it's unlimited. 
and I always tell the clients don't worry and I will duke it out myself with their insurance company and I that's not something they should be worrying about at what point or is there a point <laughs> where you decide that this person does not have the insight to participate in therapy <laughs> I don't think I have ever come across that um, because as long as they're conscious, um, I think they can participate. Uh, there, I've had some clients in the past who have been very, very difficult to work with. Um, you know, verbally abusive, physically abusive, throwing furniture, things like that. Um, with those clients, I usually uh, recommend that they have a family member or a caregiver attend sessions with them. Uh, simply for uh, uh, safety reasons uh, but also those family members a lot of times are calming to them to have them around mm -hmm. uh, and so that can really help things it's a great idea and then it's helpful too because if they have homework or things they're supposed to be working on the family member was there with them and saw how it works and then they can help with that outside of the office one of the things I also do when clients first come in is I tell them that sometimes their treatment can move at an excruciatingly slow pace and so they might not see any progress and I explain to them that part of my job is to notice the tiny little bits of progress they do make so I encourage them that anytime they feel discouraged to bring it up and let me know and I'll point out the progress they've made. And nine times out of 10, as I do that, they kind of have these aha moments and it gives them a little boost. Sometimes you don't get that boost and they're still discouraged. Um, I will a lot of times tell them things like, you know, let's, let's take a week off. Let's take two weeks off. There's no reason, I mean, it's not crucial. Take a couple weeks off, take a break, and then come back in. And usually that does the trick if, if they're really discouraged. Um, and when they come back, they're excited to come back because when they take that break, that's they may not be able to see the progress, but they can see how much they backslide when they're not coming in. And so that's a motivator. Okay, so you talk about having family members come in for sessions. Mm -hmm. if that would be beneficial. How can we best support family members who have a loved one with right brain injury? And I know sometimes, like it depends on the setting um, and how involved the family is, whether or not we get a lot of interaction with them. Um, and I know I've seen family members that are just completely overwhelmed, they don't know what to do, but they also don't want to come across as unsupportive, mm -hmm. so how can we help them? In my experience, working with people with brain injuries is one of the hardest areas to have good boundaries as a provider, 
because so many people come in and you just want to, you know what to do. You know how to fix the family. You know how to help them. And you just want to do it. But you can't. You have to have those good boundaries and the family needs to learn how to do it on on their own and so does the client. So for me personally, that's a really difficult area because I just want to fix them all. Um, but when I see those family members uh, come in, I encourage all of my clients to bring their family members in with them to any session they want um, and even to have family members come in on their own. And what I do with those family members is I find that I would say 95 plus percent of my brain injury clients have never gotten a simple explanation about what a brain injury is and neither of their family members. So I have a I have a skull with a removable brain and when they come in with the family members we start at the very basics and we go through what a brain injury is, how it affects people. And then when the family members come in on their own, they're able to sort of pick my brain, so to speak, about certain behaviors and why are they happening? What do they do about them? Uh, and also, it gives them a place to just vent, and you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe just say terrible things about the person that they just can't yeah. to the person. They've got to get them off their chest. But it also gives me a lot of information because when I work with somebody with a brain injury, every inf- little bit of information I get is filtered through the lens of their brain injury and when I get the family members in here and I hear maybe a completely different version of the same story it all kind of makes sense and so it all that also allows me to better help the client with the brain injury Um, I have a particular client that I've been working with for a while and I have always referred to him as the poster child of brain injury recovery he and his wife and they've given me permission to share their stories with other clients because they're pretty inspirational and I use him as an example a lot of times for clients explaining you know I have this other guy he was in a similar situation and he struggled and I tell him how he came out of it and how long it took and that gives a lot of people hope and they you know they know that it's they can see it's not a fast process but then they hear about how well this guy is doing Um, and that actually has been very helpful yeah and you touched on something that i'm very passionate about which is health literacy Mm. and this concept that i think quite often we take for granted the knowledge, like just the basic knowledge about the brain or about mm-hmm. brain injuries or whatever we're working with, and just taking a hundred steps back <laughs> and starting from point zero with patients, I think can be incredibly helpful. Yeah, it's I, I've you know when I was at Bridges, uh, brain injury education was a big part of the of the program, and so I never encountered somebody who didn't know what their brain injury was all about unless due to the brain injury their memory was really bad and they would forget daily Um, 
it wasn't until I started seeing brain injury clients in private practice and now that Bridges is gone that I am amazed how little people know about what's going on with their own brain and their own body. Yeah, having information is very empowering. I frequently get um, clients, in fact, I just had one yesterday, call and leave me a voicemail, um, thanking me because a five-minute talk about what a brain injury is answered so many questions that have been kicking around in their heads. And just that one simple little five-minute act means the world to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have to catch myself because I frequently assume, because I'm in skilled nursing, you know, they've been through other facilities by the time they've reached me. So I assume that these conversations have been had. And one thing, I was listening to another podcast um, by a speech therapist called Speech Uncensored, and they were talking about this concept of checking in with people. Like, what has, what has anyone told you about brain injury? Or what do you yeah. know about your brain injury? Just starting the conversation with that rather than, okay, we're going to work on left neglect today. Here's the task. This is what we're trying to do. And just diving into it, <laughs> like stepping back yeah. and checking in. And that's, that's what I do in that first session. The first session with, in, in my office with my clients is uh, you know, mainly introductions, and then I start with that. So tell me about your brain injury and, and people always tell me about the accident or the incident that caused their brain injury and then I you know say but what do you know about your brain injury and usually the answer is I don't know uh, they in all the rehab clinics and things I, I think I don't know if they're too focused on on the, the actual care itself right. but um, they never they never come in here knowing. Um, I actually, I take that back. I've had one new client recently who knew so much about his brain injury, he was using words that I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, that's the other thing I do with a lot of my, or with all of my clients, is I don't talk about things like, you know, uh, left side this or right side that, or I don't use any... I don't use any medical words, um, essentially. Uh, I just talk about their issues and so that they know that we're working on, okay, we're working on your anger today, or we're working on memory. Mm -hmm. um, we're working on your lack of a filter. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try to bring it down to, um, to a normal person's right. level. And in 10 years, everything we know about the brain is going to change. <laughs> so yeah, I remember probably better not to talk about In high school, they told us that we would, you know, we were born with a certain number of brain cells. We'd never get more. Then in college, they told us, no, that's wrong. And then it's, you know, they go back and forth and back right. and forth on just that. <laughs> yeah. And now they're growing brains in Petri dishes. So who knows what will happen? Wow, I could really demonstrate brain injuries if I had some of those. <laughs> Okay, you talk about seeing things through the lens of brain injury. Mm -hmm. And this was a question that I had emailed you, I think yesterday. 
and trying to think through how do we communicate and again I'm thinking because I work in a facility where people come they don't leave they don't go home they mm -hmm. stay they're impatient so they're kind of stuck in this place and a lot of things that like life happens and maybe they're socially inappropriate with the staff maybe they don't understand uh, how they're coming across to people they have that limited insight mm -hmm. they're trying to get through this recovery and one question that comes up is well how much of this is just their baseline <laughs> personality like maybe they were always a jerk maybe they never really knew how to talk to people maybe they were always flirty and inappropriate and mm -hmm. so then it kind of gets shifted into this situation where there's this expectation that they just need to straighten up and figure it out or they're going to get kicked out and i imagine that's like any place whether they go and live in an apartment or they go home with their family it's like yeah. you need to get it together or you're out of here how do we help i mean i guess it probably just comes back to education but how do we help people see these behavior and personality changes through the lens of brain injury so i think to do that first you have to know just like how your question started how much of it is them how much of it is a brain injury um so this, this is actually a question I'm kind of passionate about, so I'm going to get comfortable here. <laughs> um, this goes back to the whole uh, person-centered approach and systems theory. Uh, when I get a new client, I have them sign releases for me, um, and I, I get information from as much as I can from everywhere. Uh, I even get, like, you know, MRI imaging and things. I don't know how to read an MRI. I don't know what I'm looking at. But a lot of times in with that, there's a lot of information. So I, I spend quite a bit of time, I guess, researching each client as much as I can. Um, and I had a guy who recently came in, the one who knew more about his brain injury than, than I did, with an entire binder full of his medical records. And I copied the entire thing and read every page of it. And by doing that, I get a lot of insight into just that. Who were they before? What are these things uh, happening to them now? The other thing I do is I talk to family members. Uh, and family members are probably the best resource that I can think of. And they can tell me this is who they used to be, this is who they are now. So that's that's the best way to get to know what's what. Sometimes somebody will come in and, you know, maybe they're homeless or whatever their situation is. They have no family. They don't have anybody to tell you that. In those situations, it's a little more difficult. Um, but either way, brain injury or not, um, uh, you know, if somebody's getting aggressive, if they're getting overly, you know, handsy with a nurse, things like that. That's not appropriate behavior. And so I just address it head on. Um, part of that uh, person-centered approach is sometimes being not, I don't want to say not professional, but again, just meeting the client where they're at. Uh, so for instance, uh, maybe you've got a client that swears a lot. It's just part of their the way they communicate 
I don't join in and swear a lot with them, but occasionally when you're trying to get a concept across, you might have to drop in an F-bomb or something so that they understand what you're talking about. Um, and so again, that's kind of that, you know, tailoring your approach to each individual client. Um, but I think kind of dropping your guard in a way on a lot of that stuff is really important. What I found with uh, working with people with brain injuries, and I, I honestly can't think of an exception to this rule, it's whatever your discipline, it, you'll be much more effective if you focus heavily on the relationship between yourself and the client. If they, typically with a brain injury, people are pretty guarded and they're unsure because it's a scary place to be when you aren't really even in control of your own brain. And if they trust you, then they're gonna do the things that you're telling them to do for their own benefit much more readily and with more enthusiasm than they would otherwise. Uh, I would guess that probably a majority of my clients consider me uh, their friend. Uh, and that's that's what I want. That's what I need to be able to give them the help that they need. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> awesome. Do you think that self-awareness and insight make us human? Yes. That's my wife's biggest fear is that robots are going to become self-aware. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, well, I think... There's a lot to what makes us human, but yeah, I think self-awareness and insight are two key components to that. And with a brain injury, you lose some of that, sometimes a lot of that. Uh, and I think, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I think that that could very likely be a big part of the reason why brain injuries are so difficult to live with. Uh, because no matter how much you try to be self-aware with a brain injury, sometimes you're not. Um, other times things like anger, uh, I frequently, daily, have clients tell me about how they you know, blew up at their spouse or their son or their daughter. Sometimes as long as a couple of days and the whole time they knew that whatever they were upset about wasn't anything to be upset about and they knew they should stop but they weren't able to and that is devastating to most people so they've they've got that self-awareness and they've got the insight but they can't do anything about it This is a question that came in from a listener named Minda, and she says, Hi, I recently had a patient with glioblastoma who presented like a right CBA. She had all the classic symptoms with severe left visual neglect and anosognosia. Not much in my toolbox was working to increase awareness. She believed she could return to work and drive. 
No awareness of left side paralysis or cognitive deficits. I tried the metacognition strategy, but it made her cry. When I had her do simple math, she got 0% and we talked about how she couldn't go to work as an accountant. This made her very upset and she cried. Then she didn't want to do any more math. She cried and said she hated being like this. She knew she had brain cancer, but other times she didn't remember. I felt sorry making her cry, so I stopped the metacognition technique. She never made much, if any, progress. How do we work with these patients who have anisognosia, making them see their deficits, but not making them upset? Wow. Um, when, to answer the, the, the last question there, I don't know that that's possible. Um, when I have clients who aren't able to see their deficits or don't want to see them, uh, we I work with them to first to get them to understand that this is a real deficit, and that can what I do varies. Um, I like to take a pretty practical, hands-on approach. Um, so uh, recently I had a client who uh, after their brain injury for some reason couldn't comprehend like walk, don't walk, red light, green light at intersections. Um, and so there's a grocery store down the street so we took our session outside and we there's a busy intersection a half a block away and we went to the corner and we talked about the traffic and how much traffic was coming by and I said so tell me when you would walk when you would cross the street and they waited a few seconds and said I would cross now and there was you know a UPS truck coming and a bunch of other traffic and, and so we talked about that and she uh, she broke down and cried because that made sense a lot of times even simple abstract thinking is hard. So if we were to sit in the office and have a conversation about that situation, it wouldn't have made sense to her. But going out and doing it in the real world and seeing, okay, if you had stepped out right now, that UPS truck would have hit you. That kind of black and white, more concrete example was works really well. Um, and really breaking it down into the small components and smaller questions. Yes. So a lot of times, I'm glad you brought that up, because a lot of times the way I work with people with brain injuries is very similar to the way I work with people uh, with autism. Uh, so somebody with autism, you might give them a task, say, you, know, you dump a bunch of crayons out of the box and say, I want you to put these back in the box and I want all the yellow ones, yellow colors on the left side. Somebody with autism might look at that and think that is an unmanageable request. So you might say, okay, let's find all the yellow colored crayons. And then, okay, we found them. Next step, let's put those in the box on the left side. Okay. And then you add the other crayons. Same concept. Um, just breaking it down into a big thing into manageable chunks. Um, so if somebody, when they realize that, like like this woman, when she 
broke down and cried. Um, I don't really do anything special other than take the time and let them have their moment. Yeah. And then if they want to talk about it afterwards, we talk about it. Um, I kind of let them guide the session and kind of lead it in, in that situation because in that situation I've done my job getting them to understand that now you're kind of cleaning up the mess and that happens a lot with brain injuries there's a lot of I buy Kleenex by the box or by the case there's a lot of crying and 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 all you can do is help them through the moment and then continue uh, another part of that again goes back to the uh, person-centered approach is I meet people on their level so when I mentioned previously that you know sometimes you might have to throw in a swear word because that's where the clients at um, I've had situations where I've had to just be blunt with clients uh, I had a, a member of the Blackfeet tribe uh, years ago when I was working with Bridges uh, had an anger problem and all the therapists in the office had tried everything they could and couldn't get through to him so as an intern they thought we'll just dump him off on the intern <laughs> here you go intern see what? what see what you can do work your magic and when he came in he was angry he didn't know why he had to see me and he was swearing at me and um, his favorite word um, probably can't say on a podcast been a-hole and he was calling me that uh, in the session and he wanted to know why he had to be there and I said well it sounds like you have kind of been an a-hole and we need to figure out how to fix this how to make it right and that's what it took for him he was totally shocked and blown away um, and he it made an impact and those things like that that make an impact when you've got a brain injury those are the things they're gonna that are gonna stick in their minds and they're gonna remember and so then he wanted to keep coming back and seeing me every day and we made progress and the last update I heard was that he was still being a nice guy and it made such a huge impact on him that a few weeks later he brought in a tribal elder to the office and they did a ceremony and they gave me an honorary Blackfeet name. Uh, Which I'm is? Awasabsi Napiquan. means crazy white man. <laughs> and he said he named me crazy white man because I was the only white man brave enough to call him an a-hole when he needed to be called an a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it, it brings up these thoughts that oftentimes it's the people that are the hardest to reach that need the help the most mm -hmm. yeah they need exactly connection and they need somebody to be straight and honest and connect with them <laughs> exactly and that's that's exactly what he needed and it worked um you know and that's not obviously not an approach i've i used prior <laughs> or i've ever used since but for that particular client yeah. that was what he needed um, uh, a big thing that I, I, when clients are really struggling and they can't get past their anger, especially, one of the, the little techniques that I use, um, it's kind of a last ditch effort, 
but I'll explain to them that with a brain injury, they're seeing the world through the skewed lens of a brain injury, whereas me and other people around them aren't. And I don't use that very often. I use it in very special, specific circumstances because that one little statement can have it can have a life-changing effects on people. Um, and I just used it recently um, and with a client, and it did. It, that's what it took for him. And he, he's working on his anger in a way that he was never able to before. And his family has said that their, their house is calm for the first time in like eight years. Therapy Insights Podcast is supported by Therapy Fix. Every month, a team of licensed and practicing clinicians work together across the country to comb through the latest research and create engaging, expertly designed handouts, interventions, and resources. Hi, everyone. My name is Catherine, and I live in Pennsylvania. I'm a graduate student clinician, speech-language pathologist, and I subscribe to Therapy Fix because I'm entering my adult rehabilitation practicum and wanted access to more resources and material. One of my favorite things I've received in a Therapy Fix was the different article highlights. They provide such a wonderful way to stay up to date on current research and saves a lot of time by giving you the highlights and important takeaways. I love that I will be able to use these simplified versions when explaining my therapeutic rationales to patients and their families. Learn more and subscribe at therapyinsights.com. Well, and too, like, I mean, her, her question about glioblastoma, I mean, in my experience with glioblastoma, it happens fast. And mm-hmm. like, they're on a trajectory of dying very quickly. And how do you shift it from, okay, we're going to improve this insight to just listening and just being there and just helping that transition happen to sort of give them the opportunity to accept what's going on and connect with their friends, connect with their family, kind of let go of this idea that things are going to go back to the way they were Mm -hmm. and that they've been given this incredibly tragic diagnosis. That's tough. I would say 95 plus percent of my clients uh, are here because of like a a fight or a car crash. That's mainly where where they come from. But I do have clients uh, who have all their brain injuries are coming from all sorts of medical issues. tumors, uh, weird growths, you name it, um, a stroke. Um, when typically by the time somebody comes to me, uh, they are pretty grounded. Uh, they, they know what's going on with them. Um, and they've either come to terms with it or they're close to it. Uh, so I don't get a lot of people like that very often, um, but sometimes I do. And 
when if somebody comes in and that's and they're having a tough time dealing with something like that I just let them talk and we completely switch course you know if we were working on anger uh, prior to that uh, we just stop and we deal with whatever's going on with them right now every session I have we start with a check-in you know what's new how you doing done anything fun recently and try to keep it light but sometimes that devolves almost instantaneously into crying and sobbing and um, and any issue they've got even if they even if it's something very minor when you've got a brain injury you you get fixated on things and so I mean it can be something as little as you know they can't find their pack of gum that they know they bought recently and it, it it's all they can focus on so we focus on that pack of gum you know when you go home where could you look for it um, if you can't find it what can you do mm-hmm. go buy another pack <clears throat> there's um with a brain injury if if they're focused on anything other than what you want to work on and you can't get them on track within the first five or ten minutes uh, then I usually turn the focus to whatever their preoccupation is so that's again that's another example of why it can take so long to work with people with brain injuries yeah but meeting them where they are and going with that flow is so much more successful (laughs) it is and then enforcing what you want to do yeah, and then you also walk a fine line there uh, because that can get to be a habit for them. And then they can come in every time wanting to talk about things they lost. <laughs> um, and, you know, when, when as a therapist, when I work with people, we don't just focus on behavior and things. Uh, I work with them a lot on things that kind of cross paths with things that speech pathologists work on and OTs work on and so you know I might give them some tips on how to how to organize their house so they can find uh, things better I've, I encourage clients to uh, when they're trying to clean one room is overwhelming so I tell them pretend it's like an archaeological dig break the room into little quadrants uh, several times clients have had me I stop by their house and I'll, on my way home from work and I'll just take a picture of their living room and I print it out and I use a sharpie and I draw a grid on it they come back in I give them that map of their living room and say work on this square I love that. <laughs> it's again it's breaking it down and making it simple yeah awesome uh, if you ever sustain damage to the right lobe of your brain what would you hope that your therapist or speech therapist or occupational therapist or physical therapist understood and offered to you? I was hoping you'd ask this question. Uh, I have a unique insight into this. I've had six pretty serious brain injuries in my life. Six? (laughs) When I was three, I tripped over a rug and smashed my head on a coffee table and cut it open, had to get 10 stitches. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I had an accident in gym class and a big steel bar hit me on the head and knocked me out, had to have stitches. Uh, when I was 12, uh, 
February or March of the year I was 12, a four-foot steel exhaust fan fell out of a ceiling at a Boy Scout camp, landed on my head. I was out cold for around five minutes. Uh, and then later that spring, uh, I took a line drive during baseball practice to my left temple. I was out for about five minutes then. When I was in college, uh, I was in a car accident, and the way the accident happened, it, I had my seatbelt on, but it, I might as well not have. And I broke the rearview mirror through the windshield with my forehead. And honestly, there's a sixth one, and I can never remember what it is. <laughs> but so I, and all of these went untreated, never diagnosed, never treated. But I've had deficits throughout my life uh, with memory, um, frustration, uh, organizational skills, uh, all kinds of things. I just always assumed that either there was something wrong with me, or maybe this is how everybody is. And it wasn't until I started working with people with brain injuries, I was thinking, oh my gosh, that's me, that's me, that's me too. So when clients come in here and they try to tell me about things, I usually know firsthand what they're talking about. Um, so I try to be that provider that I would want, had I ever had that. Um, and what I would want if I was working with somebody is somebody that treated me like they're equal, treated me like a human, uh, somebody who went slow and took the time to focus on what was going on with me and to actually listen to what I, I have to say. Um, I, think, I think those are the, 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 the big ones um, wow. that I would want. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. It's always, it's always, I mean, I don't know if it's just the reality that now we're coming into more awareness collectively of the brain and of brain injuries and we have yeah. more resources available to people. But even, I mean, you look at what's happening with professional football and that mm -hmm. whole conversation and it's like there's this disconnect between what we know and then what we provide to people. So. Yeah, and that was something, you know, I didn't get into the brain injury realm because mm -hmm. I had brain injuries. Um, I never thought about having a brain injury until right. I was doing this. And it just, I remember the day when it all made sense to me. And I didn't even say anything to my wife about it because I thought she's gonna think I'm nuts. <laughs> and it was several months after I figured it out that I told her and I remember she was just kind of going like, oh, yeah. <laughs> now you, I understand you, <laughs> your quirkiness. <laughs> wow. How do you feed your soul? <laughs> you told me that you see patients back to back Monday through Thursday, so mm -hmm. you must have some way of feeding your soul to be able to do that and to offer that. Yeah, right now I have roughly a hundred active clients that I see on a regular basis. Um, people will call me and say, do you have room for a referral? And in Montana, I am the only 
therapist who's a certified brain injury specialist for the entire state. So I feel like I'm doing a disservice by not taking on clients as they come in. So I, I never turn anybody away. Um, I find a way to work them in. Um, and so, yeah, I do. I work more than I should. Um, in grad school, they always push self-care on us, which was a, a joke because there's no time. <laughs> you've got a job, you've got a practicum, you've got school, you've got schoolwork, and there's no time to take care of yourself in there. Uh, but afterwards, I learned that you have to do something for yourself every single day. Um, it doesn't have to be anything big. My standard routine, uh, my wife knows that I'm usually burnt out by the time I get home from work. So usually the first half hour or so when I get home from work, I'll go out on my deck or I'll just sit in my recliner and stare at the wall and not talk to anybody, not listen to any, anybody for about a half hour. Um, but then I take time to do stuff that I really want to do. Uh, I love Alaska and I love fishing. Uh, so we went there last year, we're going again next year. Uh, I love baseball. I went to spring training last year, I'm going this spring. Um, it's important, I think, to not only take those, do those daily things for yourself, but then to do something where you completely unplug and get away from work. Uh, with that said, I guess I think the biggest thing I do is I'm very good at separating home life and work life. When I leave my office, everything gets left behind. Uh, I see therapists a lot of times who have their cell phone, as, their personal cell phone as their office cell phone. And I think that's a huge mistake because it makes it very difficult to unplug. Mm -hmm. And it teaches your clients that they can reach you at any time. And I think it's important to have those boundaries that you're available during your specified hours and not other times. Right. Because then, then it's a disservice to the client because they become dependent right. on you. What's your favorite book? My favorite book. So you told me this question was going. You were going to ask me this one. Um, I thought about you know coming up with some lofty answer about some book by Freud or some you know Erickson or something. Honestly, my favorite book I've ever read is Where the Red Fern Grows. I first read it when I was twelve, and I twelve, and I I bawled my eyes out. And uh, I've, when I worked with kids that didn't like reading, I would always buy them a copy of the book. What do you, what do you love about it? Them. I love dogs. I love dogs more than just about anything on the planet. Like that bumper sticker I just saw. It's like the more people I meet, the more I love my dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I I love dogs, and the kid in that book kind of reminds me of me when I was a kid and things I would have done. And so reading that book, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've read it. <laughs> yeah. All right, crazy white guy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything else you wanted to add or did I leave anything else? I don't think so. Yeah, well, thanks for... You have provided so many great gems and insight and I think a lot of inspiration. 
I just want to thank Andy for the gift of this conversation and for everything he is doing to provide opportunities for connection and healing for people with brain injuries in Montana. And you can learn more about his clinic at MissoulaTherapy.com. This podcast is produced by Megan Berg with Therapy Insights. Every month we produce a fresh batch of content, including health literacy handouts, intervention activities, resources, article snapshots, and more all designed for speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, and physical therapists. We believe in staying curious and helping clinicians save time so they can change lives. If you want to learn more about us and what we do, check out therapyinsights.com. And a brief acknowledgement of the audio segments at the beginning of this podcast. The first clip is from Atul Gawande, author of Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, from a talk he gave at Google, which is available on YouTube. The second clip is from Brene Brown, from a clip she produced on vulnerability. And the third one is from Anne Lamott's TED Talk, titled 12 Truths I Learned from Life and Writing. Thanks for listening.